0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, here's what's coming up on this edition. The new Museum of the Bible opened recently in Washington, D.C., and it's intended to highlight the history of the best-selling book of all time and its stories and to examine its impact on the world. I have some comments coming up from two leaders of the museum, Carrie Summers and Tony Zeiss. Then, a portion of the amazing story of Tiffany smiling, beset by health challenges during her childhood through her teen years. She's become an entrepreneur, a champion of missions, and an encourager to people to follow God's plans for them. You'll also be hearing from Josh and Lindsay Helms with an update about a series of resources designed to help parents and children enhance their experience of Christmas and its meaning together. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, the 100th anniversary of the death of Oswald Chambers was recently observed, and author Michelle Yule tells the story of his wife, Biddy, who is dedicated to taking the words he had spoken and compiling them, which resulted in numerous books, including the classic My Utmost for His Highest. Also, there's a new animated film in theaters that takes the Christmas story and creates a narrative around it, incorporating groups of animals as they embark on an adventure that culminates at the manger. You'll be hearing from director Timothy Record. Finally, Jamie Amerine embarked on a search, a search for Jesus, the real Jesus, not the one defined by various influences, but the Jesus described in Scripture, a Savior who is full of love and grace. You'll be hearing from her coming up. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Museum of the Bible is now open in the nation's capital, and it offers a look at the history of the Bible, including related artifacts, as well as its stories and overall impact. I had a chance recently to chat with two men in leadership with the museum. You'll be hearing from them. First up, it's Carrie Summers, president of Museum of the Bible, giving some background on how this new attraction came into fruition.
1: We started in 2010 with the formation of the Non-For-Profit, and we immediately created a, a traveling exhibit to take advantage of the 500th year anniversary of the King James Bible. Which meant that we had to run really hard and fast to get it open by uh, April of uh, that year of the 2011, and we never stopped. Uh, We then uh, started looking to uh, see where we could uh, acquire land or building in different markets, and uh, we ended up in Washington D.C. At the same time, we were continuing to travel in U.S. exhibits, and then we. Started to some that went overseas at Rome, uh, as an example, and then into Cuba. At the same time, we were looking for a property, um, so we never we never um, had a break. It was always uh, um, a sprint the whole seven years. And it sounds odd. It's um, we when we open, we it's we're, we're telling people are not. Oh, they said, oh, "Aren't you happy you're finished?" And I said, "You know, it's really." We're just starting now we've got a big toolbox we've got something that we can use as an asset to do additional programs out of which we're working on so you know it's not a it sounds uh interesting uh it's a great celebration that god has got us this far but it's not like oh wow finally we made it, uh, it n- nobody feels that way because <laughs> everybody realizes that uh the day uh, you know this uh, today when we open uh, to the big, big world, uh, we have other things we're starting to do tomorrow that uh, take on a, even a little different twist. So uh, I think that's what Paul meant when he said, "I'm gonna just run to the goal line uh, and then end." And uh, that's why we feel too. We're we're not saying, "Oh, let's let's take a while look what we did." It's uh, really just the opposite. So. I know it's a different uh, response than many people would have, but for us, uh, it's all about doing God's work, and uh, we don't see—you uh, know—we don't see uh, sort of a stopping point in that. The impact of the Bible—we took on 30 different subjects. You know, what is the impact of the Bible on government, uh, on time and calendar, on fashion, on movies, on literature, on books, and what was the impact on human rights and? Impact on science, the concept of work, compassion ministry, churches, uh, what is the impact on our daily language that we use, you know, that comes out of the Bible. So we have uh, probably another 30, 40 of those uh, that we put on the shelf because we didn't have enough room for it. So it became a real uh, editing process, which was tough, very, 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 very difficult. And the other is that we. We're not a collecting museum. We have items that we to tell the story, but we're not uh, trying to be the biggest in anything. We're not trying to say we, you know, many museums just collect and collect and collect, and they have these giant warehouses. We don't have that. Uh, we have a relatively very small collection of 2,800 items, and um, so we had to be very careful in what topics we did pick. And so there again, the whole editing process was really one of the biggest challenges that we had uh, because of uh, space and money, and we had to uh, put our best best foot forward on what we thought this is what uh, would have the biggest impact. But you know, now you you, you know you're, you've got them built, and um, our team can't wait to you know. Put some new ones out, and we haven't even opened. You know, we have. We, you know, we're we're opening the the museum today. So it, it's. uh We just realize there's so many, so much to tell about the Bible, and great impact on what the Bible can do, and our team is. uh You know, they really want to keep showing uh, all the different aspects of what this amazing book has done in people's lives.
0: Carrie Summers of Museum of the Bible here on The Intersection. The museum's website is museumofthebible.org. I also chatted with Tony Zeiss, Executive Director of the museum. He discussed several elements of the facility, including three primary exhibit floors dealing with history, narrative, and impact, as well as some of the technological aspects. Here now is Tony Zeiss.
2: We have some artifacts of our own, but we have even more artifacts from the Israeli Antiquities Authority. We have artifacts from the Vatican. We have the Vatican Library here. Uh, We have artifacts from uh, Germany, the Bavarian Library. We have artifacts from uh, Amsterdam. Uh, It's a Hebrew uh, Jewish uh, gallery. Um, And then we have the history uh, of translations also from the very early Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, and then Greek uh, translations, and then, of course, into uh, the Vulgate, or Jerome wrote a uh, first translation in Latin, uh, and then uh, how it e- evolved into English uh, copies, and, you know, people gave up their lives uh, trying to translate the Bible into English. <clears throat> Difficult time. Uh, you'll see a lot of that, and we still have, like, over 2,000 languages do not have Bibles written in there language. And so you'll see a, an exhibit on that, on that particular uh, floor. How would you There's so- also a demonstration laboratory where scholars will be working and translating artifacts uh, to add to the body of knowledge of the Bible, and they'll talk to visitors as they come by.
0: Comment on what you see are some of the high points of the narrative section of the museum.
2: Oh, the narrative section, very exciting. Um, uh, Uh, It's on our third floor, and that means the stories of the Bible. And it will include, of course, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, It includes the uh, New Testament theater. Oh, that's that's really a a must-see video. They have worked on this video for four years, and they condensed it down to 12 minutes. You can see this video that wraps all the way around, around you, you know, front and on both sides. Not all the way around, but both sides. Uh, in 12 minutes it takes you through the entire New Testament it's really really uh, powerful and then there's the uh, uh, city of uh, or the village of Nazareth which we recreated to look like the first century village of Nazareth and in one section the parables are featured another section how they uh, you know how they process grapes and wine another section what they ate, and there's a, a house, a, a first century house, and how they cooked, and then there's, a, uh, of course, a synagogue, and then there's a, an olive press, and a well, and a, there's a carpenter's shop, as you could imagine, and then on one wall, there's a huge mural of the Sea of Galilee, which is 16 miles away, but we will have living interpreters in there, and I think everyone will find that to be one of the top uh, uh, attractions
0: and there is the aspect of the impact. Share about that, if you would.
2: Oh, yes, it's really exciting. It's one of my favorite floors. It's on the second floor, and it features uh, in one area, a large area, 23 different exhibits uh, uh, recognizing the impact themes of the Bible. For example, the Bible has influenced our culture so much. Think about it in, in literature, and in art, and in music, Uh, in government, even in fashion. And we have some women's fashion that came directly out of first century biblical times. And then we have a large section called the the impact of the Bible was called Bible in America. And uh, I mentioned that a little earlier, I think And Bible in America features the progress of America, uh, through our 250 some years. Uh, and, um, and the influence that the Bible had on it. In fact, in one case, there's an attraction uh, called Washington Revelations. It's really, uh, you get on this little bitty, uh, well, it's not little bitty, but you get on this um, stage, and the stage moves and pivots around, etc., and then you have you start, everything goes dark, and you look at a video, and it flies you out of the building virtually. Uh, up to the National Mall, and it laser points out at monuments and buildings wherever there's biblical text or or scripture. It goes up into the, flies into the capital, does the same thing. It flies over. Across the street to the Library of Congress does the same thing. and Then it flies you all the way up to the mall. It's very, very exciting uh, to the Lincoln Memorial. I won't end, I want people to be surprised, so I can't tell the, the surprised ending. But the idea is to say, <laughs> look how pervasive Scripture has been in, and is today in our culture.
0: Tony Zeiss here on the intersection. The Museum of the Bible website again is museumofthebible.org. Well, Tiffany Smiling joined me recently. She is an author and entrepreneur. She shared about her health challenges during childhood and her teen years and her pursuit of God's dream for her life as she recounts in the book, Your Dream, God's Plan. Are you longing for something more? Here now from a recent conversation is Tiffany Smiling.
3: When I was 10 years old, I began having seizures. And my family and I traveled to world renowned neurosurgeons around the nation and um, to find the root of it, and I was diagnosed with a very rare form of brain cancer. I had a brain tumor that was three types in one, and the difficulty of it was the location. It was on my motor strip, so it was hard to get in there and remove. Um, eventually, I was sent to St. Jude's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where I underwent four brain surgeries, and when I was 16 years old was my fourth and final brain surgery. And so I went into the brain surgery, you know, praying and believing the Lord that this was the last surgery and that I was going to be healed of cancer coming out of the surgery. But when I woke up in the hospital room the day after surgery, you know, I started realizing that, you know, I couldn't move my leg when the nurse cued me to, or I couldn't move my arm or, you know, I was speaking funny. And when I tried to stand up out of the bed, you know, I collapsed to the floor and we realized that I suffered a stroke
4: mm.
3: in the middle of surgery, and the most difficult part of it all was when I walked to the mirror and made it to the bathroom, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and the girl I saw in the mirror was not the same person I knew before I went in. My face completely drooped, my head shaved from the procedure, and I couldn't even you need know, to hold myself up. I'm being held up by the nurses and my parents, and it was my my life was shattered in that moment. As a 16-year-old girl, you know, I knew that anything physically had been taken from me. Mm. I had to learn to walk. I had to learn to talk. I had to learn to leave my left side of my body again.
0: How would you describe the state of your, your faith as a Christian during this season of your life?
3: I was so fortunate. I grew up in a Christian home, and I had been taught a spiritual truth since I was a little girl. And so I would say I grew up in a very strong Christian family. But when my world had been shattered like that, you know, there's a point where you have faith and there's a point when your faith is tested. <laughs> so I was put in a position where my faith had to be proven. And um, that moment changed everything because there's a point when you have you have no other option but to depend on the Lord when you feel so hopeless. My relationship with God since then is a whole new level than it was before, only because now, you know, when you've come through cancer, you've come through a stroke, when you've come through these broken parts of your life, you're more prone to trust God, the next thing that comes up, and see life from a different perspective.
0: You went to Oklahoma State University, and before your senior year, you actually opened up a, a yogurt franchise and this actually became the first of what have what has really become a number of different entrepreneurial endeavors on your part what drove that for you what motivated you to to really put your skills to work to be involved in not only business but what uh, ultimately has become a number of ministry endeavors
3: when i started getting involved working with employees getting that business off the ground you know there's opportunities to open more businesses so i went to the lord and i was praying about it and god started showing me how he wants to use the skills he's given me for growing businesses to growing his ministry and his work and not just my own and at the same time he's showing me this he's also speaking to me about orphan children and i've never heard him speak to me before um, so clearly than this moment he started to show me, you know, how many children around the world are in need, and his greater, his greater focus and his greater purpose is to reach the children around the world and reach those who have never heard the gospel, and he started, like, birthing my heart with the resources I had to start something. So I got my employees all at my store together, and I started telling them about this vision, and I ended up starting an organization called the With All My Heart Foundation that rescues the unreached and underprivileged children around the world. And our goal is to go in and plant a church, and through the church, to help the orphan children by building them a home, through the church, feed the children in the community that aren't getting fed, and through the church, provide an education as well for them. And we run everything through the church with the purpose that. All the children that are impacted by the work we're doing in country will never know our organization's name, but more importantly will know that Jesus fed them, Jesus clothed them, and Jesus cared for them um, through the local church there. But God has definitely shown me how we all have resources, we all have a skill, we all have something that we're good at that we can use towards growing his kingdom.
0: Tiffany Smiling here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website tiffanysmiling.com. Well, I had a chance to talk with Josh and Lindsay Helms recently. They are the creators of Shepherd on the Search. They discussed the response to the Shepherd doll, which was launched last year, as well as a number of new resources available, including a 25-day family Advent devotional book, an Advent calendar, encouragement notes, and more. From that conversation, here are Josh and Lindsay Helms.
4: Well, we started it for our, our kids. You know, we have two little ones, and... Um, as we know, Christmas gets noisier and, and uh, more distracting, it seems like every year. And so we really just wanted a fun way to make sure their attention's directed towards Jesus at Christmas time. And so we wanted something that would be a tradition that we do every year. Um, and so yeah, that's where our shepherd came from and it's the shepherd on the search and what he is is a little shepherd boy for those who don't know that's in the field when the angels come and announce the birth of the Messiah. And he goes on a great journey to find the baby, Jesus, in Bethlehem. And then, of course, he repeats his journey every year through your house, and your kids get up and find him. And it allows us as parents to spend a little bit of time every day talking about the real reason for the season, which, of course, is the coming of the, of the Messiah.
0: So, Lindsay, tell me about that first shepherd. When you first started doing this in, in your home, uh, what was he like? <laughs>
5: Well, you know, it, it, before we had our actual shepherd that we do today, of course, Josh and I had to kind of create something on our own. so he was he was a very creative little shepherd, um you know, something unique that that our family had. But you know, it was basically just something that we could use, um, you know, and and we we would bring out every year at christmas time. and and, like Josh said, you know, we kind of created the story around him, taking the Christmas story, incorporating the little shepherd boy and, you know, really making him, for lack of better words, come to life in our home every holiday season.
0: Well, elaborate just a bit, if you would, Lindsay, on the search. Obviously, he visits various parts of the home, as as I understand it. How is it that you guys actually used him?
5: Sure. Um, Well, you know, kids, you know like josh said we have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old and you know as it is right now actually they're playing outside chasing each other so you know a lot of a lot of things that they like to do for fun you know it's a lot of those things remain the same, but as also as they get older, they change. And so we wanted our shepherd to be something that would be fun for both of our kids and that would also grow, you know, grow with our kids and remain fun for them. So you know, kind of just the simple concept of the hide and seek, you know when 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 they wake up in the morning, you know they're out to find where the shepherd is on his journey. and and we always tie it back to the message of Christmas and the message of the shepherd searching for Jesus. So you know one day he may be hanging in the Christmas tree or another day. You know, he could be on the countertop with a little message, you know, a little note of encouragement or a little, you know, challenge for the day. Sometimes those are always fun. Um, But, you know, as we draw closer to Christmas, you know, the message becomes clearer and clearer that the shepherd's on his search for Jesus. And, you know, ultimately the grand reveal Christmas morning, he's found Jesus in the manger. And, you know, that really keeps the fun tied in with the real reason why we celebrate Christmas.
0: Now, Shepherd on the Search has expanded for 2017 and uh, we were talking earlier there are six new opportunities six new resources that are available along with shepherd on the search so josh take us through that whole developmental process as you began to add other items to this whole shepherd on the search family
4: sure well you know the heart behind that was making sure that we're doing our best to equip families to use the shepherd in their house right and so um, that's the whole point of, of all the other products. One of them that I'm really excited about, and this one has been on my heart since we started the shepherd years ago, was um, a devotional. And this is comes out this year. It's a Shepherd on the Search 25-Day Family Devotional. And started on December 1, of course, through December 25th. And each day has a few different sections. One is um, a little lesson from, from the perspective of your shepherd, which kids, I think are going to love to actually hear their shepherd kind of come to life and talk a little bit more about his journey and what he learned. And then there's a place to dig a little deeper, maybe for older kids, where you get into a little more scripture on the day and on the lesson. And then every day also has an activity, something fun you do that relates to that day's lesson with the entire family. So we're super excited about that. We've got a cute little ornament. We, we partnered with a company called Spring that did a great job on creating some other products to help equip equip families to keep Christ in Christmas.
0: Josh and Lindsay Helms here on The Intersection. Learn more at the website shepherdonthesearch.com. Well, this is The Intersection podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more by visiting the website meetinghouseonline.info. There, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection podcast. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, the other is the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, the 100th anniversary of the death of Oswald Chambers was recently commemorated. Author Michelle Yule, who has written the biography Mrs. Oswald Chambers, the woman behind the world's best-selling devotional, talked with me recently. She shared about Biddy Chambers. She was a stenographer who compiled his teaching and preaching into books, including My Utmost for His Highest. Here now is Michelle Yule. They were in Cairo, Egypt when Oswald Chambers (laughs) died, and and if you look at the timeline, he was in his early 40s at the time he died. So what was he doing in Cairo?
6: He was uh, teaching at a YMCA hut, which is like a USO center. They were seven miles north of Cairo, surrounded by the Australian and New Zealand soldiers. The light um, brigade was there, the horses. And every night he would teach or he'd give a lecture or he would minister to them. The soldiers could come there after their 130-degree day of, you know, working in the desert. They could write letters. They could get refreshments. So Biddy would go to all of those talks and would take them all down. He also traveled around the Cairo area also preaching. And he led a revival among the troops. Uh, One man said it was almost worth enlisting to hear his teaching. Um, The men were just so enamored of the things he had to say. They were going on their way to their deaths. They were going either to the trenches of France or up the line to Jerusalem. And he was determined they knew the gospel before they went. Their eternal salvation or, or, you know, they needed to make a decision before they went. And that's what was driving him during those years in Egypt.
0: Mm. So he his, his death, obviously, when you look at someone that, and I believe is 43, is the actual number, the actual age he was when he died. What was the cause? Yeah.
6: He had appendicitis. He delayed going to the hospital because he felt that he, he didn't want to take a bed from a soldier. They were getting ready to go up to the lines to take Jerusalem. And, you know, he spent so much time in hospitals visiting, he didn't want to get in their way. As it turned out, he left it to too long. Um, and then he died at 43 of you know, repercussions from appendicitis that went too long.
0: So here you have Biddy. Uh,
6: there's a lot of controversy about that. <laughs> You know, he was a man who was really in tune with the things of God, and Biddy mm. had a word from God that this is not unto death, but unto God's glory. For the longest time, of course, she looked at it's not unto death, but after he died, she turned to it's for God's glory. And if he had not died, she would not have put not only my utmost for his highest, but 29 other books together. And, you know, 90 years of ministry from my utmost for his highest. It went to POWs during World War II. It was smuggled across the Iron Curtain uh, during the Cold War. You know, I don't know. You have to weigh that yourself. Is a book worth a life? But God has used it, and there
7: you are. Mm.
0: And she was 34 years old at the time of his death. Right? Four year old child. Exactly. She was in Egypt. She was mm-hmm. far away from home. So, what did Biddy do? How did she respond?
6: Well, the YMCA asked her to stay on until the end of the war because they recognized her importance to the ministry. And while she was there, she kept running the camp. She did some teaching herself, but a lot of it became the ministry of what she called the books. When she got hundreds of letters after Oswald's death, she sent out a pamphlet of his teaching just as a a thank you for writing. And people wrote back and said, can we have another one? And that went on and on. And finally, seven months after he died, the YMCA said, we will take care of this. We will send these out to all the corridors of the war. You just write them for us. And they sent out 10,000 pamphlets a month. That was a spiritual encouragement to the soldiers at the front lines from, you know, Egypt to Germany to France and everywhere in between.
0: We are commemorating the 100th anniversary of the death of Oswald Chambers and talking about Biddy, who was his wife and someone who God used in a powerful way to carry this message. Tell me about how she compiled my utmost for his highest based on on things that he had spoken
6: She went through she had seven years worth of notes a couple of trunkfuls of notes and was living in oxford england after the war running a boarding house for oxford students and after she was done cooking and cleaning and so forth she went down to the basement and read through all seven years worth of notes then she called them and put them into themes Uh, she had to put a title on each one and and each reading can come from as many as three or four different lectures. So you can see her thinking, all right, this is a the theme of obedience. Where did he talk about obedience? Oh, this one. Oh, then over here in this one and that one. So it's really amazing how she was able to take her encyclopedic knowledge and turn it into 366 readings that make sense and which are so uh, inspiring and right to the heart as a Christian. I mean, I'm this morning even I was reading it, going, oh, "Yeah, that's right, of course."
0: <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> Michelle Yule here on the intersection. Find out more at ULE dot com. Well, this is the Intersection podcast, and I had a chance recently to talk with the director of the film, The Star. His name is Timothy Record. He shared about the animated feature film, which is centered around the concept of the Christmas story as viewed through the eyes of animals. Here now is Timothy Record.
7: I think the way to think about it is think about your typical presentation of the nativity story, whether that's a Christmas play or a movie or, or something, uh, and imagine that uh, we're pointing the spotlight on the characters on the sidelines. Uh, so so we're doing the nativity story from the point of view of the animals. and They've always been there. They're part of everyone's nativity scene. But this is the first time that we've had a chance to hear what their side of the story was. Um, So what that means is that everything that we're used to hearing about the the Nativity story, you know, no room at the inn, King Herod sending the wise men out, uh, you know, Mary having a conversation with the angel, all of those things are faithfully represented in this movie. But our focus is really seeing those moments through the eyes of these side characters that we're getting to meet for the first time.
0: Well, and I had the opportunity on several occasions in the past to talk with the executive producer of the film, Devon Franklin. He, in fact, involved with Heaven is for Real and Miracles from Heaven. How is it that you and he actually linked up together for the star?
7: Uh, You know, we we had not met uh, before this script was put in front of us, and it was Devon's first time doing animation uh, and my very first time directing a film at a studio level. So in some ways we were both kind of, you know, treading new ground. And really, it's the first time since, uh, since Prince of Egypt that anyone's done at the studio level a big animated release like this on a biblical subject. So, it really, it was fresh ground for everybody. But uh, Devon and I met, you know, we had, you know, we really, I guess you'd say we vibed. Uh, we had similar thoughts and goals for a movie like this where we wanted it to be faithful but also to be very entertaining and, and, and not to compromise on any of the... Uh, film craft that we put Mm. into any of our movies
0: tell me about the the challenge of remaining faithful as you said earlier you wanted to remain faithful to the christmas story what did you find to be the the challenges as far as telling the story from the point of view of the animals and making it funny and crisp and very engaging dialogue but yet still remaining true to the overall christmas story
2: well, you,
7: you know, I think one of the tough things about adapting the true story of the Nativity is that the end of the story is the birth of Jesus. And, and really, in some ways, that's the beginning of the story, because that's only act one of the larger story of the Gospels. Uh, but and, and the other thing is that if you if you try to cheat and make the birth of Jesus really glorious and amazing and everyone's looking and the miracles are happening, then you're sort of betraying what the whole point that, uh, of, of Jesus' choice to be born in that way was, which was to, to purposely to be born in a way that was humble and ordinary on the outside because greatness was hidden on the inside. And so the, the, the challenge to us was to find a way to tell an original story about Bo the donkey. No one knows his story, so we got to invent it. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we told a story that was true to this theme of Uh, The idea that something great and important can come uh, under humble appearances. And that's really sort of his journey is coming to realize that this is a truth.
0: What could be some things that could be discussed after a family goes to see the
1: star?
7: I think there is a lot. Uh, I think uh, that's one of the things that's so much fun about the movie is that there are so many angles that you can approach this story with and we hit a lot of them through all these animal characters. One of the the themes is just the theme of friendship and how the animals are only able to come to save Christmas uh, by working together. Um, I think an even deeper theme that we're trying to touch on in this movie is that so many people are, are searching for their purpose and are searching for the great thing that they feel they're called to do. But they find themselves stuck in in a life that's not going to get them rich and famous. So so where am I going to find that great thing? And that's the similar situation that Bo the donkey finds himself in. But the realization is that the great thing that I'm being called to do is right here where I am, where essentially where God has placed me. Uh, this is this is kind of the field that I'm meant to work, and this is where I'm going to do great things, uh, as long as I do them with a lot of love. And uh, I think that you know that's that's a lesson that matters. You know for fifth grade teachers, for moms, for dads, and also for kids that are just kind of stuck doing algebra homework. <laughs> hey, if that's where God's placed you right now, that's that's what you're called to do.
0: Timothy Record here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the film through the website, thestarmovie.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Jamie Amerine, author of the book, Stolen Jesus, An Unconventional Search for the Real Savior, she shared with me about her own personal search for the real Jesus in her life. Here now from that conversation is Jamie Amarine.
8: About seven or eight years ago, I was working at uh, YMCA and um, teaching a spin class. He was in the foyer when you very walked in for as long as I could remember. He was always this, this very familiar painting. It's Solomon's Head of Christ, which if anybody wants to look at this, you know, very recognizable portrait of Jesus. And actually, the first image of Jesus that I ever had, because I was actually um, originally Mormon as a child, and that was the face of Jesus in the Mormon church. And I came out of this spin class, and he was gone, and he'd been replaced with a dry erase board. And I asked the receptionist, where the heck is Jesus? And she said, well, he's behind the filing cabinet, because management thinks he's too old-fashioned. And I went and clocked out and took him and put him over our mantle at our house, and We just referred to him as Stolen Jesus, and um, he was—I've just talked to him for this whole time, and he's just kind of a presence in our home, but that's how we referred to him as Stolen Jesus. And um, so that was a chapter in my book that actually comes out next year, Sacred Ground, Sticky Floors. And um, my agent just kept saying, you you just always refer to these um, Jesuses, um, Target Jesus, Americanized Jesus, Mormon Jesus, Stolen Jesus. She said, I think it's a book, and I want you to pray about it. And I started praying about it, and it was weird. I I had this flash in my mind of set captives free, and so I had a Post-it note on my computer the entire time that I was writing it, which was a very quick process. And um, I didn't realize he meant me. (laughs) I was captive um, to so many lies about who his true character is.
0: You talked about this whole concept of Jesus being an if then Jesus. I know that something else, in fact, you referred to it earlier, is you have this concept of the Americanized Jesus. So, what does he look like?
8: He is very, he he has a lot of guilt. (laughs) And I think he, it depends on the person. For me, He was about affluence. It was a genie in the bottle, the things that I wanted, the things that I hoped for, the things I wished for, and how I could behave to get them. So it it does go back to an offend Jesus, but there's an affluence, and then there's a guilt that goes with it. Like, I should be doing more. I should be living in a tent somewhere, serving the children. I should adopt more. I should do all of these things. And when I came into the message of grace and realizing that the cross was enough and that he loved me as daughter, and that I was whole in him the things that I wanted like foster care and, 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 and a different car and all of those things didn't have the guilt with them that they it, it's there's conviction and there's condemnation. And I didn't know this. I said it. I know that the scripture, there is no condemnation in Christ. I did not believe that. And, and, Americanized Jesus has this condemnation where we're so sorry all the time, just miserably sorry. And we're guilty about target and we're guilty about our checking accounts and we're guilty about our affluence. And, and there was just one point where he went, I know where you live. I mean, I, I, it was almost laughable. It was like, like he didn't know that this is where I was planted and that this is the life that I'm living and that he can use me here or I can rest here, but I'm still his daughter. Nothing changes that. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think our minds, especially in America, because we are affluent, it's easy to, to make him into, you know, a genie in the bottle and 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 misinterpret so much about where peace comes from. But peace Jesus is peace. And and when we're making him into something and we're making him um, fulfill wishes or believing that somehow What we do makes him do something. There's no peace in that. It's actually very miserable existence, and it was the existence that I was living. And once I was free from that, and I just accepted my, my 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 right, passage's daughter, his his beloved, I was finally I believed him. And when I believed him, I was the fear was gone, and and the things that I wanted to do to serve him weren't about what I was going to get or what I was going to be protected from. They were just about because I loved him, and it was
0: just different. Jamie Amarine here on The Intersection. Her website is sacredgroundstickyfloors.com. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. At that home page, you will find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to the Intersection podcast. Two blogs can be accessed. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Also, content from the Meeting House program can be accessed through the Faith Radio app. You can find out more by going to faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.